Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. dungeon in my bunker, but live from FM News 101 KXL in Portland. Good evening, everyone, and it's good to have you with us here. Full two hours tonight for those of you in the Portland, Vancouver metro. And first and foremost, thank you, Bruce Collins. Thank you, Alpha Media. We have to say thank you, and we have to say thank you to our listeners because you've put us in this spot right after John B. Wells on Saturday night from midnight to 2 a.m., rocking the paranormal and the strange and the conspiracy like nobody else. And thank you so much for being with us here tonight. I never take it uh, for granted the time that you grant me every week. Tonight on the program, our show episode is called Ancient Alien Theory. This is not the stuff that you're going to see on television. We're going to be talking about contact. And specifically, if maybe we have, well, if we've gotten it all wrong, if we viewed this topic one way or another, and we really should be viewing it another way. You know, we welcome all points and perspectives here on this program. We certainly uh, want to challenge your thinking and sometimes that can ruffle people's feathers. Uh, We certainly hope you don't take it personally. But perhaps we have been going about the search for E.T. life all wrong. Maybe it's right in front of us. Now, we have learned through observation that planets outnumber stars in the Milky Way. And we know that because we've observed them. And that the conditions perhaps could be right for life to thrive. So the question is, are astronomers missing the detection of alien worlds because they're looking in the wrong place? I want to read just a small smidget here from National Geographic. It says, quote, the majority of planets beyond the solar system have been detected by watching for worlds that 
traipse around our uh, their stars' faces. Although the, this transit method has produced prodigious results, it misses the countless planets that don't pass in front of their stars from Earth's perspective. You mean to tell me that we could be missing something here? And we could be looking in all the wrong places. Hmm. Consider me shocked. You can sense the skepticism, I'm sure. But what if we flip that on its end? Where might the aliens need to be in order to see us? See, we've been trying to find the ETs through SETI and through a variety of efforts. What about, instead of us finding them, them finding us? And if they were to find us, if they were to try to see us and observe us, where would they need to be? Where would they need to be to see us? Because maybe they can, maybe they have that uh, ability to see us from wherever they are. But I don't think it's as simple as that. And I want to give credit to Cornell University's Lisa Koltenegger and to her partner Jackie Faraday, a senior scientist at the American Museum of National Natural History. That is because they did a study. Koltenegger uh, says. Which stars could see us as the aliens, as the transiting planet where the Earth blocks out the light from the star? Now, both of them worked out an answer to that question in a new study that's been published last month in the journal Nature. They used data from the European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft, which keeps close tabs on the movements of more than a billion stars. And by doing so, they were able to calculate that aliens orbiting more than 2,000 nearby stars could indeed see Earth marching across the sun's face during a 10,000-year period. That would be 5,000 years into the past and 5,000 years into the future. Isn't it just amazing stuff? Sometimes I find this stuff more interesting than stuff you find on the front page of the newspaper. The stuff that you got to dig a little deeper for, you know? makes you wonder, wow, if they could see us and if they could see 5,000 years into the past and 5,000 years into the future, I wonder what they would think about mankind, particularly right now. Their calculations also found, though, that an estimated 29 potentially habitable planets can see Earth transit and are near enough to to detect human-made radio transmissions. So while I have been a skeptic, of radio transmissions over the years, particularly the efforts of SETI and other organizations, because I have not found them to be fruitful. And I think it's about time that we go about other ways, because I've seen results in some other ways of searching for signals that I'm wondering if, if we fo- refocused our efforts, might we have, might we bear more fruit, right? Because if we're all, you know, if we are indeed trying to solve the mystery we have to ask all the questions we can't just be so narrow-minded that we don't think about any of those questions and so could it be possible that we are actually closer to making contact than we thought now i understand this is just one study but we're headed into the right direction here and if it's possible that that indeed Doing what we've been doing will actually bear fruit. I am am all for it, but I just want results in my lifetime. That's what I'm after. And with the uh, collapse of the Arecibo Observatory, 
I know there's another telescope that's supposed to be coming online. Hopefully, we can get back to some of these science operations. And in fact, tonight, Brad Bernards has good news regarding Hubble. Hubble's now been able to resume scientific operations after more than a month of being offline to a, uh, due to a computer glitch. So it's possible that we could be close to making contact, closer than we thought. It's possible. But now just think of everything that I've just said and forget about everything that you think you know. Because we are about to challenge your ideologies tonight. My guest is Paul Anthony Wallace. And Paul is a researcher, a speaker, and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. He researches the world's mythologies for how they speak to our origins as a species and our potential as human beings. Paul has helped establish foundations for new faith communities and has designed training for church ministers in the UK and Australia. Paul has lectured on the history of religious thought and principles of interpreting texts and has served the Anglican Church as an archdeacon in the Australian Capital Territory. He provides personal coaching and is a practitioner of healing in the Christian tradition. And his new book, which is out now, is called Scars of Eden. And it is highly recommended. It's the follow-up to Paul's first book, where he ventured down this rabbit hole. And then, seemingly, all hell broke loose in the world. And now, we welcome Paul Anthony Wallace back to Into the Paranormal. Hello. Good day, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me on your show again. Oh, it's it's such a good time to to always talk with you. Uh, I know folks got a lot of what uh, from our discussion the first time, and I think that tonight is going to be uh, no different. So, do you think that we're looking in the right places when it comes to contact? And would we know what contact was if it hit us upside the head? <laughs> There are a number of places you can look. You were talking just now about SETI, which is where we're peering into space and looking for signals with uh, non-random patterns that would clue us that there's there's an intelligence behind the signals we're reading. This was, of course, the baby of Carl Sagan. And that was just one of the directions in which Carl Sagan pointed us, because as well as pointing us into space to read information, He also, especially early on in his career, pointed us to ancient texts. And he was very interested in the texts that came out of Mesopotamia, the texts of the cultures of Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, Syria, because he believed that in those texts was an ancestral memory of contact in the deep past. So he pointed us in two directions, look for contact in the present and look for contact in the past, and he was a great enthusiast for the um, theory of panspermia, which is the idea that life in the cosmos is the rule rather than the exception, and that the genetic coding for biological, intelligent, conscious life has been seeded throughout the cosmos, not just on planet Earth. And so he published a lot of articles back in the day in the 1960s, uh, articles by people like Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, who from the get-go was talking about panspermia as an explanation for life on Earth. And he came to that conclusion because of the huge time frames he saw implied by the mathematical structures of DNA. So 
There are a few places you can look. Go to DNA research and you will find people in the present day, people like Maxima Kukov, Vladimir Sherbak, right at the top of their field in studying uh, genetic coding, who will say there is mathematical evidence there to say not only has there been contact, but that we are part of a chain of civilizations. So you can go there, you can look into space, you can look into ancient texts, and in The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden, my start point is the ancient texts. And looking at what our ancestors had to tell us and then looking for correlations today. So, Paul, how do those ancient stories of contact and abduction relate to the experiences that people are having around the world to this day? Well, they are startlingly similar. It always amazes me when some poor, brave soul comes out and is willing to say, I had an experience, I think it was a close encounter with an ET, with a non-human entity from some other part of space, or when somebody comes out and says, I was abducted. Now, when I say that, immediately, I th- probably people's minds go to National Enquirer stories and <laughs> crazy sensationalized stories. But when I say abduction, let's remember that U.S. defense has spent money researching this with regard to the experience of U.S. pilots. Um, they tasked John Mack. About 20 years ago, Harvard's, little more than that, Harvard's head of clinical psychology, School of Medicine there, they wanted him to assess defense personnel who reported abduction experiences and close encounters to find out if they were safe to fly. Were they sane? Were they having psychotic breaks? What was all this about? They just wanted to know if our defense was in safe hands with these people flying and so they asked him to assess them psychologically and he came back and he said there's no pathology indicated here we need to investigate what they've experienced because it's something objective so when i say somebody comes forward and says uh i think i've been abducted we're not just talking about people making 50 dollars by selling their story to national Enquirer. we're talking about the people in whose hands are the defense of our nations Uh, And so there are credible reports in the present day, but we always react as if we'd never heard the light before. And in The Scars of Eden, I point out that the elements of those stories have been unchanged over thousands of years, that you can go to every culture on every continent in every century, and there will be reports of close encounters and abduction experiences that are indistinguishable from the experiences that people report today, bearing in mind that in the recent um, Senate report, the Senate Intelligence Report, it I don't know how familiar you might be with the, the contents of it, and it I sounded mean, at first it like it was... It didn't take me very long to uh, review it, I'll tell you that much. Oh, I know, it was six pages, wasn't it? And it was only looking at how many years? Uh, 14 years of information, and only looking at information from American defense, and it started off with all this language that suggests nothing to see here, folks. But you, by the end of the six pages, what they've told you is that every six weeks... U.S. defense operations are interrupted by UFOs that they don't know what they are and where they've come from and that there's no evidence that they are 
from covert operations from home and there's no evidence that they are the advanced technology of other nations. So that information is all there in the public domain in the report. And so, as I say, there really is a continuity between the experiences we, that includes our defence forces, are having in the present day and the kind of experiences described by our ancestors in oral tradition and, as I argue, in the scars of Eden and escaping from Eden, it's there in the Bible as well. Could you take us to some of those places in the Bible where we see references? Because I'm sure people would be interested in in that, Paul. Sure. Well, for me, the start point, the thing that got me into this territory, because some people are surprised when they hear a senior churchman talking about ET contact and saying it's in the Bible. My journey was through Christian ministry, 33 years as a church doctor, church planter, archdeacon in the Anglican Church, training pastors in how to interpret ancient texts. And so all that time I was doing business with what was in the Bible. And there are so many places you can go to to find paleo contact in the Bible. But the thing that got me going, the white rabbit that took me into the rabbit warren of these topics, was a key word, and it's the word Elohim. Now, it is the earliest, the original word in the Bible that we usually translate as God, although in some texts it's translated as God, and then in other gods, or false gods, or demon, or demons, or angel, or angels, or chieftain, or chieftains. How do the translators work out what it means in the different texts? And this creates a few anomalies, and I decided when I had the time I needed to drill down into that. And when I did, my linguist's brain went to work, because my first love is languages. I was very fortunate at school to learn French, German, Latin, went on to learn Italian, Portuguese, New Testament, Greek. So when I go to a text, my first question is always, what do the words mean? And the word Elohim which we often translate in these ways, go to the root meaning, and it means the powerful ones. In the plural, it's a masculine plural form word. It takes plural verbs and attributives, and then it demonstrates plural behaviors. The Elohim say, let us make the humans to look like one of us. When they have a debate among themselves about how intelligent humans should be, we don't want them to be too much like us. Or now they've become like us with knowledge of good and evil. And these plural behaviors extend. In fact, there are conflicts among the Elohim so great that thousands of human beings are slaughtered in the crossfire. And so these are all clues that it really is a plural noun. So the moment I saw that, I asked the question, what happens if we reread the Elohim stories as stories of the powerful ones, and translate it that way. Just use the root meaning. Well, when you do that, the stories flip. The way it's translated at the moment, where Elohim gets translated as God, the Bible stands as a counterpart to all the other ancestral narratives from around the world, as if the Bible is saying, forget every other culture, forget what you've heard anywhere else. This is the true story of what happened in the beginning. The moment you translate Elohim as the powerful ones, it flips and it lines up with all those other stories, confirming and finessing them. And the moment you read it that way, it becomes crystal clear that in the Bible, you're reading the summary form of what's in the stories of the ancient 
Sumerian culture, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian. Hundreds of thousands of cuneiform tablets carrying the oldest stories known to humanity, those are the long versions of what's in the Bible. And the red pill for me was realizing that the stories on which the Bible's God stories are based are not stories about God. They're stories about what the Sumerians called the sky people or the Anunnaki. And the storyline makes very clear that the sky people were extraterrestrials, people who came here in the deep past, colonized the planet, and had a hands-on involvement in our development as a species. So would that mean that we are all extraterrestrials or have been bred by extraterrestrials? Well, the way the stories go, if you listen to the Sumerian stories, reread the biblical, listen to African narratives, Mesoamerican, Greek, Indian, they all say that we're kind of a hybrid, that we have a primate ancestry, but that in our deep past, visitors came to the planet and genetically modified us to upgrade our capacity for consciousness and intelligence. So these are central stories to uh, world mythology. It is a theory of our origins held to by Plato, who any philosopher will tell you there's been no greater mind in philosophical history than Plato, writing two and a half thousand years ago. And this was the idea he put forward, that we were happily developing, evolving on our planet, and then others arrived elsewhere in the cosmos, bearing in mind that we're all related, according to the theory of panspermia. It's all the same genetic coding that's produced our neighbors. But some turned up who were a little further down the track than us and then upgraded our ancestors to be smart enough to become the working class for the ETs who had come and colonized the planet for their own purposes. And the stories repeat in such incredible detail from culture to culture in such a way that really caught my attention and made me realize what I'm looking at here is vehicles of deep memory and recollections of the same visual memory, that different cultures will have different language to express the things their ancestors saw that we can now reread with a 21st century mind and have a pretty shrewd idea of what they're telling us. My guest is Paul Anthony Wallace and his website, paulanthonywallace.com. The book Scars of Eden, and I'm Jeremy Scott. Our program of Into the Paranormal called Ancient Alien Theory will continue right after this. I'm Brad Bernards. The space race is officially on. Here's Parabnormal News correspondent Daniel Brewer. Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson and crew boosted into space aboard the VSS Unity last Sunday. Welcome to space. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, just imagine what you can do. At 53.5 miles above the Earth, the aircraft briefly rode around the edge of our atmosphere. Hundreds of people have signed up for a trip, including Branson's friend and SpaceX founder, Elon Musk. 
who slapped down a $10,000 deposit. Next up, Blue Origin has a launch of their own. Founder Jeff Bezos will be on board when the first crewed spaceflight of the New Shepard vehicle launches this Tuesday on the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. They plan to get slightly higher at 62 miles above the Earth. This is Daniel Brewer for Paranormal News. Life Science reports Chinese scientists are planning to fire more than 20 rockets into space to divert an asteroid impact that has a small chance of one day ending life on Earth. Their target is an asteroid named Bennu, an 85.5 million ton space rock that is on track to swoop within 4.6 million miles of Earth's orbit between 2175 and 2199. Although Bennu's chances of striking Earth are slim, just one in 2700, the asteroid is as wide as the Empire State Building is tall, meaning that any collision with the Earth would be cataclysmic. NASA reports it has successfully switched to backup hardware on the Hubble Space Telescope, including powering on the backup payload computer on July 15th. The switch was performed to compensate for a problem with the original payload computer that occurred on June 13th when the computer halted, suspending science data collection. There's more news at ParaAbnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, ParaAbnormal News. Anything that you cannot explain that's happened on this planet. So there must be aliens. What's interesting is that you actually have Noah's father, Lamech, questioning whether or not Noah is his son. Noah's exterior is described as very foreign. His eyes are glowing like sunbeams. His skin is glowing as well. One has to ask the question, what if Noah was one of the extraterrestrials? We have this story about these fallen angels that came down and had sex with women. God makes planets wipe out the rest of humanity. What he's wiping out is the extraterrestrial dimension. God is clearly an entity not of this earth. And by definition, therefore, extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial. Into the Parabnormal, where alien visitations make for another extraordinary Saturday night. Well, if I all get if I get taken, you'll all see it live from FM News 101 KXL. It's into the Parabnormal tonight with Paul Anthony Wallace. I am Jeremy Scott. 855-790-8255. Toll free in North America. That's 855-790-TALK. Outside North America, 503-506-0396. And on Skype, it is ITP51. Paul is author of Scars of Eden. It's his latest book. Has humanity confused God with memories of E.T. contact? We're going to dive into that. But, you know, Paul, you did kind of mention some foreign countries. And I would like you to maybe tell the audience about what's happened in Israel and also in France uh, as it relates to, you know, this kind of disclosure era. Yes, we've heard some very interesting statements. Uh, In the last four years in particular, many statements made by authoritative people in the USA and around the world. You remember that the the story of uh, disclosure, declassification, people have been waiting for this Senate intelligence briefing. It 
It all goes back to when the New York Times uh, broke with the story of the Tic Tac encounter by the USS Nimitz. That came out in 2017. And so the Times broke with that story, and then two years later the Pentagon authenticates it and admits that it's had this body within the Pentagon whose job it is to investigate UFO encounters and materials from UFO crashes. So we heard that from the guy who ran that unit within the Pentagon for 10 years, Luis Elizondo. It was then confirmed by people like Eric Davis, uh, the uh, astrophysicist who confirmed that that was indeed the case. Then we heard from Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense to President Clinton and George W. Bush. So this is all within the States. And then Alain Juillet, the former chief of French security, so that's, that's like their CIA, came out and said, yes, that body exists. He was there when the current iteration of it was set up. And yes, it investigates UFOs and materials retrieved from UFO crashes. We've heard from Jacques Vallée, very credible uh, scientist who is willing to go on record and say his work today investigates metamaterials, materials from what they believe is crash retrievals, materials that have been engineered off-planet. So Eric Davis used this phrase, uh, off-world vehicles not made on this earth. That's what they're looking at. So all that's been in the public domain. And then just before Christmas in Israel, Brigadier General Haim Ashed, who was the chief of their space security program for 27 years, so you can't get a more credible figure than that in the field, he said that on the basis of his experience, his understanding is that we are already in contact at a covert government level with a number of ET demographics whom he described as an intergalactic federation. But he said that that federation has chosen not to self-disclose until we on planet Earth have a better understanding of the cosmos that we're living in. Now, these authorities are really significant because they are just one degree removed from the person in the position making an official announcement. So, Hayim Ished, the former chief of Israel's space security, Alain Juillet, the former chief of French security, Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense, so on and so forth. So it is just that one degree removed, and never in my lifetime have we seen people of this authority coming forward and saying things like this, other than perhaps a decade ago when Vladimir Putin's Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev on camera, said we are in contact. And, and so, Paul, why would that be? Do you think that you know, they have less to lose once they're retired? If the need arises, the authorities can distance themselves from the voices. There's a sense in which they can almost speak in an informal capacity. And you might say, well, Brigadier General Hamished is speaking in an informal capacity. That's fine, but he is speaking on the basis of 27 years of experience in that post. So it just gives that little bit of wiggle room for the actual authorities. And these people would not be saying these things unless the authorities were willing for them to do so. So it's a little bit of what we might call soft disclosure.
So they've partially been given the green light to talk about it. They have been given the green light to say what they have said. And then there are other things they're not allowed to say. But it doesn't take doing too much maths. So if Hamish Ed, on the basis of all that experience, comes out and says, I believe that, the disclaimer is there in I believe, but look at who he is and what the experience is he's speaking out of. And he certainly wouldn't be allowed to say that without permission because anyone in a position like that is covered by layers and layers of official secrets laws with dire consequences if they break them. So you know that this has been authorized. Do you think that a statement like that will be coming from someone of power in the U.S.? Well, not at this point, and I thought it was quite an interesting exercise, the Senate briefings, because it gave the appearance of government asking defense to tell what they know, uh, as if as if defense has all the information and authority and has been keeping secrets, as if there are no covert levels of government with any information. But is a little bit of a, a face-saving device, I think, and it's kind of a a half step towards disclosure. I think some of these statements in that rather thin report of six pages we mentioned earlier, it's almost like an insurance against disclosure. So that if all of a sudden it becomes blindingly obvious that we are already in contact, then the authorities can say, um, yes, we were talking about this. We said we didn't know what they are. We just found out what they are. It's a half step because up until... Uh, four years ago, the government position in the States was there is no UFO phenomenon. And now they're saying there is, but we don't know what it is. So they've sort of gone back to the policy that was in place before 1947. Before 1947, you would hear people from the Navy, people from the Air Force saying we're pursuing UFOs, we're engaging with them. In fact, we're trying to shoot them down. We don't know where they're from. And when we find out, we'll let you know. That was pre-1947, and then in 1947 we had the National Security Act that progressively classified all official investigation of UFO phenomena, and then we went into a period of debunking where the government position was there is no UFO phenomenon. So you can't go from that in a single step to we've been in contact for 70 years with various extraterrestrial demographics. There has to be a half step. And the half step is to say what that report says, that, that every six weeks uh, defense operations are interrupted by a UFO encounter and we don't know what they are. And it's just for the public to, to decide for themselves how credible do they think it is that with a unit in place for 70 years investigating the UFO phenomenon that we still don't know who and what they are. Is that credible? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, uh, Paul, in your book, you claim that our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact was deliberately suppressed. How did you come to that uh, understanding? Yes, well, there have been times when it's been deliberately suppressed and then other times when maybe it was accidentally suppressed. So if we look at the story of the Hebrew scriptures, for instance, there's a very broad scholarly consensus that the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, took their current form in about the 6th century BCE. They'd gone through a process of scrolls being gathered uh, gathered together, edited together, more added, 
edited together. Then in the 6th century BCA, the whole thing was done a rework to turn it into a unified document with a unified theology to teach there is only one God, the source of the cosmos and everything in it. And they took their holy name for God and pasted it over older texts that I argue were really about something else. So they took the holy name of God, Yahweh, and pasted it over Elohim stories, the stories of the powerful ones. So when that happened, that was, that was a, I would suggest it was a deliberate extinction of stories that sounded like there were too many gods there. <clears throat> By that point, I don't think the translators had a paradigm of aliens or extraterrestrials, so they probably didn't think they were suppressing the stories of ETs, but they did know they were suppressing the stories of other powerful entities. So you've got that that happens there. And then at the beginning of uh, Christian history, <clears throat> you had very significant church fathers who did not want to import the Hebrew scriptures into Christianity because they believed the Elohim stories were not about God. They were about a totally different kind of entity, entities we would call ETs. And there was a big to and fro in the early church as to what should happen. And the way the vote went, the Hebrew canon was included in the Christian Bible, and it was read as a seamless story of God. The problem with that is that you've got stories full of violence and genocide and um, violent, brutal actions against humanity-making progress conducted by ETs that are now credited to God. And so suddenly you've got this very violent, double-minded God in the picture who can turn on a dime, has no fellow feeling with humanity, and will torture you forever if you offend him. That's actually the stories of the Elohim, not the story of God. But unfortunately, that was the distortion that got brought in. And it may have been because they had no ET paradigm to consider. And through the generations, we've had translators go back to texts that describe close encounters. And because they have no language for extraterrestrial, close encounter, wormhole, abduction, in vitro fertilization, artificial insemination, they've translated it as stories of the supernatural, stories of magic. Whereas we can read these ancient texts and say, oh, I think I've got a pretty good idea what's going on there. Every time technology appears in the Bible, it got translated as something non-technological by accident because the translators had never seen a rocket launch or a wormhole or whatever it might be. And so there's that that can happen. But there's a very deliberate suppression that can happen too. So an example would be what happened when the Catholic forces Spain and Portugal went into Central and South America. Now there, they had a very developed story of human origins that included the memory of ET entities coming and genetically modifying our ancestors and upgrading us so that we could be a workforce for them. That was their story of beginnings. But when Portugal and Spain got into Central and South America, they took over, they became the Department of Truth, they set up the churches, they were the news agency, they were the government, they were the schools, and to get rid of every other authority with every other story, they literally executed the local priesthoods and burned the texts that held this other story to delete the old story with ETs in it, 
with the new story that was the Catholic story. And we know the story that was suppressed because they almost destroyed it, but not quite. 200 years later, it resurfaced when some successors to the Mayan priesthood took an ancient text in the Quiche language to a Dominican friar by the name of Francisco Jimenez and said, would you be interested in our story of beginnings? And he was, because he was a genuine scholar. And he translated it into Spanish in the early 1700s. It became the Popol Vuh. And all of a sudden, this other memory of human origins emerged. And it's a story that repeats all the themes we've talked about uh, hitherto that are in the Bible, that are in African narratives, Greek, Indian. It's there in the Mesoamerican. Almost suppressed out of extinction, but not quite. And these stories always have a way of bouncing back from the local folklore. So you found that as you investigated some of these texts, not only here uh, in the U.S., but in other countries as well, right, Paul? Absolutely. This was the thing that really caught my attention, and it took me on a journey all around the world. And I discovered that this story repeats in almost every culture you can name, and not just concerning origins, but concerning current contact and current abduction phenomena. Because we we would expect that the uh, that the contact phenomenon would be the same across cultures. For instance, uh, if I was abducted here from the KXL studios in downtown Portland tonight, or if you were abducted there in Australia, we would believe that, I mean, I may have a different experience than you, but people, for the most part, report the same kinds of uh, experiences across cultures. Yes, they do. And in virtually every culture, they're not believed and they're not taken seriously. Yeah, unfortunately. So what other countries did you look at besides America and Australia? Sure. Well, the thing that got me going was uh, when I was preparing for Escaping from Eden to come out, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to tell my parents-in-law about this book Uh, because they're devout Christian believers, they are from Ghana, they are of a Pentecostal and Baptist background, and I thought they might find my book a bit confronting, because the book asked, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? And I suggest the Bible has this ET narrative in it. So I thought, okay, I better give them advance notice. And so they came and stayed with us in Canberra, had a lovely weekend, had some lovely food, some lovely wine. When everyone was relaxed on the Sunday afternoon, I thought, okay, now's the moment. I'll I'll tell them. So I I told them what we've been talking about, and I said, I believe this is the true story of the Bible when we translate it right. And I had no idea how they'd respond to this. They sat there, stony face, poker faces on, no idea what they were thinking. And then when I finished, my father-in-law, Kofi, leant back and he said, Paul, a penny has dropped. Because all the anomalies in the stories we tell ourselves from the Bible suddenly resolved all the ridiculous things that God does, the mistakes he makes, the slaughters that he enacts, all resolve when you realize it's actually stories of ETs that you're reading. And then my mother-in-law, Patience, went forward and said, Paul, we already know this story. Because in Ghana, you go to school in Ghana, you're taught the modern scientific view of things, you're given the orthodox Christian answer to things. But we know from our local knowledge, from our folklore, 
that there is another presence on planet Earth that is involved in abduction and hybridization with human beings, and we've known it for centuries. It's called the Mami Water tradition. And in fact, we're very closely connected with another family where the daughter was taken for three years and held in an underwater base used for hybridization and then returned. And it was a story that it took a long time before she was willing to share with her parents. They believed she had been kidnapped. It was uh, slave trafficking, sex trafficking, a failed elopement. They had no idea. And it took a long time before their daughter said, the reason I couldn't contact you was I was held in an underwater base. The people who held me were not human. And this story repeats all down the eastern seaboard of Africa, down to the southern cone, all up the western seaboard into the Caribbean, go into the Philippines, the stories there, with vocabulary that exists only to tell this abduction narrative. That vocabulary has its roots in India, in Sanskrit. Go into Europe and you'll find that Europe is named after an abductee. The story of Europa was the story of a daughter of a king of Phoenicia who was abducted by non-human entity, made to have three hybrid children, one of whom was Minos, the progenitor of the Minoan culture uh, around the area of Crete. That is taught as the history of Europe in Greece. It's not taught as ET theory or fable. That's the history of Europe. The whole of Europe is named after that girl, Europa. Go into uh, the Nordic countries. The Norse legends tell the same. The Greeks have the story of hybridization there. And then to my astonishment, I get back to where I grew up, into Great Britain. You can listen to the people of Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. They tell exactly the same story that repeats in every detail. Non-human presence, look human but aren't, very attractive, take people not by force but by enticement into an underwater base used for hybridization, often returned a few years later. It's the most unlikely story imaginable. It doesn't correlate with any pattern of human behavior that's been told in fable form, but there it is all around the world. Fascinating thought. We will continue our discussion with Paul Anthony Wallace on this edition of Into the Parabnormal, Ancient Alien Theory. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go anywhere. Scott. 
Yes, the show is continuing with Paul Anthony Wallace on Into the Parabnormal. I'm Jeremy Scott, live from the studios of FM News 101 KXL. You get the full show tonight, and we want to thank you again for tuning in here in the Portland-Vancouver metro area and telling FM News 101 KXL that you've wanted the full two hours of the program because they sure have listened. And by the way, just a quick mention for those of you who are listening locally, we would love to come. We would love to see you at Squatch Fest, which is up in Longview at the end of the month up in Washington at the Cowlitz County Event Center. We'll be taking the show on the road up to Washington for Squatch Fest at the end of the month. So that's the 30th and the 31st, we've got the event details on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash paranormal show. And if you haven't liked our show, we would uh, ask that you do so. We also have Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And Paul Anthony Wallace, his website, paulanthonywallace.com. The Scars of Eden is his latest book. And our program tonight in which we've been talking about ancient alien theory. You talk about the uh, abduction phenomenon, uh, Paul, and I'm not going to glaze over that because I do want to hear your thoughts on that. But back to uh, you know suppression, because maybe our ancestors have suppressed this knowledge, but it seems like not much has changed because present day there's a lot of suppression still going on. Governments always communicate with the people on a need-to-know basis. So the bottom line is always non-disclosure. And that's across the board. That's not just with regard to uh, ET narratives. But it's a particularly sensitive one. If we have been in contact at a covert government level for 70 years, which is really what we can get from Haim Eshed's statement, the Brigadier General, who was Israel's space security chief for 27 years, uh, if that's the case, then it's a, a little bit tricky to come out into the open and say, yes, we've been in contact and we've kept this information from you. I think it's a bit of a political hot potato for that reason, but also because what government is going to come out and say, actually, we're not in charge. (laughs) Uh, We're not in charge. The US government isn't in charge. And in fact, there are other demographics from off planet who are calling the shots and... Where does that put any kind of authority for, you know, our democratic structures? It would just be so messy. It's not a statement anyone's going to want to make. So we'll have non-disclosure for that reason too, of course. But it's also a part of the story of empire. I gave that example of Portugal and Spain going into Central and South America. Empire always deletes and replaces the old stories. And so that's why we've got a world where the meta-narratives have come from Orthodox Christianity, Judaism, Islam, from modern science, and there's nothing else really that's allowed in to complicate that picture because we want to have authorities that, that effectively take the role of the ministry, or the, what was it, the ministry of truth was always phrase, wasn't it? Uh, we don't want to say, well, we know some bits, the Chinese know something else, and then there's some ETs who've got a much bigger picture than us, but they're not talking to us at the moment. I mean, who is going to come out with a statement like that? But that's more the truth of it. Well, Paul, maybe it's the uh, Intergalactic Federation that is in charge. Well, yes, that's really what I'm saying. And I think the policy of non-disclosure, that's where it comes from. And that the reason that our governments are are not disclosing is because they're not at liberty to. 
But even if they were, as I say, it's not a very self-empowering message for any government to come out with. So uh, as far as the the abduction uh, phenomenon, how credible do you think these reports are? And, And why would advanced species, if we believe that they are an advanced species, have any interest in us peons? Well, how credible you, you can approach that a couple of ways. If you can go to almost every culture on planet Earth and listen to their ancestral narratives that are thousands of years old and hear them say we're in contact and from time to time people are abducted and hybridized with, what are you going to do with that vast body of report? How can you possibly just write it off and say all these people, all these generations, all these cultures have misunderstood something else that's going on. I think it's very hard to dismiss like that. As I say, U.S. defense went to the the top authority they could think of in the world of psychology to assess people reporting this experience. And the conclusion from that report is no pathology. This is a genuine objective experience. So I think you have to take it very seriously. And I would challenge anybody to sit down with their friendship circle or their family circle and ask the question, have you ever experienced something that you couldn't explain? You don't know what it was, uh, but you've always puzzled over it. And I think there wouldn't be a friendship circle or a family circle anywhere that wouldn't have some anomalous story. And by the end of the group conversation, you'd be coming to the conclusion there's a non-human presence on planet Earth that's interacting with us in some strange way. As to why, well, we go back to the Mammy Water story that I mentioned that comes out of Ghana. There, the explanation is that the non-human presence that is doing the hybridization essentially wants to enrich their own gene pool with human DNA. That there is something something about... We have something unique about us and wonderful that attracts a lot of attention. Now, we started with panspermia, the idea that we're all related to all life in the cosmos, but there will be something unique every place, you know, a unique environment, a unique lineage. And I think there's something about our animal heritage, our mammal heritage, the blend of Earthling plus ET that's given Homo sapiens some really special qualities. I believe that human beings have an ability emotionally and in creativity and a sense of spiritual connection that is not typical, that is special. And I think that is attractive to some of our neighbors who find that our lives are more colorful and interesting because of our emotionality, for instance. If you go to Genesis 6, uh, that is an abduction story that people anyone who reads the Bible will be familiar with. You get to Genesis 6, and there's the story of these entities who come and hybridize with human beings. And the way the story goes, it says that the Bene Elohim, the sons of the powerful ones, or the ones like the powerful ones, so it's the second wave of ETs, come because they see the daughters of men, it says, and they saw that they were beautiful. And so, again, there's the story of there's something about us that is very attractive, that they want in their gene pool. And it's not hard to imagine that we might have a robust physicality that some of our neighbors don't have, an emotional ability that some don't have, a capacity for compassion and harmony that some don't have. But there is something, according to all our world mythologies, that our ET neighbors want in their gene pool.
So, as I said, they ha- we have something that they need, but are they really after those that are that are possessed? And that's why we're not all taken, right? Because if I'm not possessed and and an alien wants to take me, maybe I'm not of value to it. Well, I think the abduction phenomenon, if we're willing to take reports seriously, is really widespread. And I think they're interested in quite a widespread sampling of, of what we have. Don't feel left out, Jeremy. It's not something I'd particularly put my hand up <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's more widespread than we think because it is, as we said before, a story that carries a lot of ridicule with it. It's not a story that people are going to come forward with, often in their own families. They won't tell their own family members what's happened to them. But, Paul, it does say in Genesis 6 that these men, because of their devil possession, had their DNA altered by marrying unsuspecting women. And then the women bore children, which, of course, then turned out to be superhuman because they had a little bit of, uh, you know, plain old human DNA and a little bit of extraterrestrial DNA. And here they merged. Well, use the phrase devil possession, but that's actually not there in Genesis 6. And then people also use the language of angels, fallen angels coming and doing this. But I think each time we've got to go back to the root meanings of the words, ask what we're being told. If an entity comes and can breed with a human being, then clearly we're looking at a biological entity. And you're right that the result of that hybridization was what the Greeks called the Titans, was what the Bible calls the Nephilim, giants. How can that be? Well, join the dots with the biblical stories, and it seems that those who visited us actually looked human, that they were very attractive, because when some of these visitors go to Sodom, they're so attractive that people are driven wild with passion for them. Often these close encounters begin, and the humans encountering the visitors don't notice that the visitors are not human. But the offspring are different, and that sometimes confuses people, but If I can give an analogy, if you go down the road from me, you'll get to uh, the National Zoo and Aquarium in Canberra, and they've got a liger and a tigon there. Now, a liger is a big cat where the dad is a lion and the mum is a tiger. And the liger is much, much bigger than a lion, much, much bigger than a tiger. Why is that? Because with lions, the growth inhibitor is carried by the mum. And with tigers, the growth inhibitor is carried by the dad. So if you've got a dad who's a lion and a mum who's a tiger, you've got no growth inhibitor. And you'll, ju- you'll be born a normal size, but you just keep growing and growing and growing. And so that's one way in which hybridization uh, can start with two beings that look very similar and end up with a child who's much taller than both the parents. And it's a story like that that is there in Genesis 6 and repeats in the Greek narrative and the Norse and in the Vedic and around the world. And thank you for making that because there certainly have been interpretations on Scripture that over time maybe haven't been accurate. Is that a problem uh, that, that you see, Paul? Well, it makes for a very interesting conversation, but <laughs> the fidelity with which the ancient texts have been curated and translated through the generations has been so great that we can go back to ancient, ancient Hebrew texts and have another go at translating them to work out what's really going on. And 
we go back with, as I say, technological frameworks, cosmological frameworks, so that we can read encounters and use language that our ancestors didn't have and come to a much clearer understanding of what was seen and described in the first instance. So the original versions have not gone missing. They're still there, just waiting to be translated in a way that's clearer. What's your thought on the future human uh, theory, which is that these extraterrestrials that are taking people are actually humans, but humans from the future? Well, it's an interesting idea. It's not the way our ancestors tell the story. So it's not a story I'd write off, but my start point is ancient texts, ancient world narratives, and their explanation is sometimes explicit that these people have arrived from space and sometimes very specific regions of space are described. The Pleiades, Orion, Sirius occur in explanations from all around the world. And then there are other narratives, if you listen to stories from Native American traditions or, or Babylonian, in fact, uh, Oannes and the Apkalu would be an example where other beings just appear from somewhere and we're not told from where. There is a possibility also that we've got contact with previous civilizations. And what happened in the Fertile Crescent with the sudden appearance of farming 10,000 years ago at Karakadag, that could be contact with a previous civilization, with, with the greats. Um, I don't rule out that there might be time travel and that there might be future humanity nurturing present humanity. It would be a nice thing to do for an earlier version of ourselves, but I haven't found evidence for that in the ancient texts. I'll just, I'll just say that. Okay. What are, what are the scars that you discuss, the scars of Eden in your book? Where, what is that title uh, based on? Well, what I put forward in The Scars of Eden is the idea that there are evidences in our psychology as a species and our geopolitics today that are the vestiges of paleocontact. And so if you look at what, what were the traumas our ancestors suffered that they all report, and we hear that there were conflicts among the entities that governed us over human population. How many humans should there be on the planet? What access should they have to food and water? What access to medication? What access to information and education? We look at patterns of warfare where one powerful one sends its humans out to war against another powerful one's humans. And the conflict has nothing to do with the human beings. It's a conflict among the powerful ones. And I talk about those patterns being really entrained into human psychology so that our very concept of leadership is rooted in a time when our leaders were not human. And so when people talk about strong leadership, for instance, they're often talking about a leadership that will force things through no matter what the cost, no matter what the opposition. And um, where do we get the idea that leadership with no compassion or interest in the effect on people is strong leadership? And then when a leader comes along who says, we're not going to make a decision until we've considered all the implications heard from all the affected parties, we think that's weak. Well, I think our earliest experience of leadership was from entities who were so clearly our superiors that we deferred to them, who had no fellow feeling with us and therefore could do things with no empathy involved. 
It's those kind of psychological scars that have affected us and to this current day and affect our politics to this current day through religion as well, where I talked about the distortion in the idea of God that comes when we read traumatic encounters with ET forces and say, oh, that was God doing that. So when humans are genocided, oh, God did it. When there's a flood to get rid of humanity, God did it. When we're bombed back into a pre pre-Stone Age condition where we can no longer speak to each other, oh, God did it. Well, if you then have to worship and love a God who is so full of violence and hate, that does something to us psychologically. And it's not hard to see that we've justified all manner of violence and abuse through the ages in the name of a God who is violent and abusive towards us. And so the scars are really deep in terms of how we perceive ourselves, how pacified we become, how deferential we are to authority, how much abuse we'll take without fighting back, and then the abuses we flicked on each other. I argue in the scars of Eden, all that is rooted in the traumas we suffered in the deep past when we were colonized by non-humans. Paul, that study that I had at the beginning of the program tonight in which I identified some stars in which people far more smarter than I uh, have identified as possible locations where the ETs could be spying on us, right? Because we've always been hearing about, you know, like the SETI and efforts that have been going on and you know, shooting lasers and, I mean, message in a bottle that goes on and on about us trying to contact aliens. And some people say that's a good idea. Some people say it's not a good idea. But what if the aliens are watching us, Paul? Well, this is what the Sumerians told us, and this is what the Bible tells us when we translate it the way I I argue for. You go to the book of Enoch. It's a very interesting book. It's there in the Bible, uh, in the canon of the Bible for the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and it's a book that didn't quite make it into the canon for the Bible in the rest of the world, but it speaks about the watchers, 300 watchers, whose job it is to sit on space stations observing planet Earth these are called observers in the um, Sumerian text. And we have the story of Babel, which would appear to be a stargate or a launch pad that sends the observers up onto their space stations, their job being to watch us. And so this idea that actually we are being observed is ages old, thousands of years old, and... I would be very surprised if it was true then that it's not true now. Now, Hayamashed says not only observed, but being communicated with at a covert government level. And do those texts say where they are observing us from? Well, as I say, there are regions of space that keep recurring from culture to culture, age to age. And so Orion gets a mention. You'll find that in Egyptian, uh, Aztec. Mayan story, Sirius, um, the, um, oh, I've suddenly blanked on the name of a really interesting people group from West Africa who say that their ancestors came from a planet orbiting Sirius C. And then we've got the Pleiades. And if you listen to Native American story and Aboriginal Australian story, the Pleiades are identified as places from which people came in our deep past to nurture humanity and help us to learn how to live in harmony with the planet and how to develop uh, crops 
medicines, sanitation, and how to live as a civilization on the planet. So those are the places. They're not the only places, but those are the ones that, that repeat most frequently in our world mythologies. We hear a lot about humanity these days, and it's not looked on so kindly, at least here in 2021. Uh, but as far as living in harmony or living as one, we've heard from abductees who have had contact with extraterrestrials that the, one of the messages they want to get across is, look, we are all one. Let's all quit fighting and get along. And perhaps the contact experience might be the turning point that gets us all on the same page to realize, well, it's us versus them and not us versus each other. Well, that's very true. Ronald Reagan said that back in the day when he was uh, developing his Star Wars program, the what was it, the SDI. Uh, he gave that speech, didn't he, at the United Nations that said exactly that, that if there were an alien presence threatening us, if there was an alien threat of war, would that not bring us together? And then he made these really cryptic remarks saying, is there not already an alien presence among us? And that rather intrigued people. Hey, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, we'll continue. Paul Anthony Wallace coming down the home stretch of Into the Paranormal. Our program tonight called Ancient Alien Theory. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep within the studios of FM News 101 KXL. Abnormal news. I'm Brad Bernards. The enzymes uh, can break down the lactate in your sweat, which you actually have a lot of, and then that can generate energy. In the future, this sweaty season may actually be an energy goldmine. On Tuesday, researchers at the University of California at San Diego announced the invention of a sweat slurping electronic device, a wearable that can transform sweat into usable electricity, according to reporting in Inverse.com. Lu Yin, a Ph.D. student at the UC San Diego Nano Engineering Department, tells ABC 10 News. The fingertip has a very high density of sweat glands, and uh, the sweat glands are uh, constantly emitting sweat, which is the reason uh, you leave fingerprint everywhere. Small enough to wrap around your finger like a Band-Aid, the device collects sweat from perspiring fingertips and turns it into energy. The ultimate celestial show of the summer is underway, and you have a few weeks to catch a glimpse. The Perseids, named after the constellation Perseus, are a spectacular shower of blazing elemental meteorite colors that you're not going to want to miss. According to NASA, it's without question the best the year has to offer. Skywatchers could see as many as 50 to 100 meteors per hour, traveling at unthinkable speeds of 37 miles per second. The nightly show can be seen all around the world through late August, with the peak occurring around August 11th to the 13th. The best viewing time in the Northern Hemisphere is between 2 a.m. and dawn, or even earlier. No telescope Needed. Swift Tunnel, or Perseids Comet, was discovered in 1862 by astronomers Lewis Swift and Horace Tunnel. This is Daniel Brewer for Paranormal News. There's more news at ParabnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, Parabnormal News. 
they came and built the pyramids, they came and built the Mayan temples, they came and built the Indian Kailash temple. Here we have this large pyramidal structure and the witnesses, they can't believe their eyes. The book of Revelation talks about the unveiling of a new world. There's the earthly Jerusalem. This is a new Jerusalem. While many take the book of Revelation to be symbolic, there is one curious aspect which leads some to believe it was inspired by an otherworldly encounter. Could the new Jerusalem have been a mothership? recognize that when the ancients are speaking about God, there is no other term that we can use to describe these experiences other than extraterrestrial. Still not sure what to believe? You're traveling into the paranormal, where the truth is not tainted. Nope. Certainly we challenge it. We always challenge your thinking. I want to thank Paul Anthony Wallace for bringing up that uh, Ronald Reagan famous speech that we've played on this program over the years. But it really relates home here because, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, scientists have identified possible locations, possible stars in which the aliens could be observing us. Paul Anthony Wallace says we've known about that for for thousands of years through some of these ancient texts. And then in that famous Ronald Reagan speech in which he alluded to the fact that maybe there's this extraterrestrial race already among us. In our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Did Ronald Reagan know something in 1964 that many of us are still struggling with today, Paul? Well, it was a very strange time because in that speech, he hints at the possibility that he was responding to an alien threat. And at the time, we all wondered about the Star Wars initiative. Were we developing space-bound weaponry to protect us from other countries on Earth or to defend us from an external threat? The very nature of the weapons made us ask those questions. He then made that tantalizing speech. If you go to the next sentence, he kind of lets the audience off the hook when he says what could be more alien than the threat of war. And so the metaphor moves on. But he left that sentence hanging in a very dramatic way. Now, I live just down the road from a research facility in Buckinghamshire in the UK where scientists were working on the SDI for Ronald Reagan. And we all wondered what they were doing, if this was really to do with an alien force, to use that language. It's pretty emphatic language. And while we were all wondering, the scientists at that uh, in, involved in that program began dying. And by the time 25 of them had 
supposedly committed suicide, all of us were wondering what was really going on and what was being covered up that related to Ronald Reagan's SDI program. Clive Jenkins was the union leader for scientific researchers at that level, and he came out and met the press, and he said 25 suicides is statistically impossible. The coroners refused to say it was suicides, and so Clive Jenkins said there must be an urgent government inquiry. Well, Prime Minister... Margaret Thatcher was in power at the time, and she said there's no need for an inquiry. The minister can tell you what was the cause of these deaths, and the minister said it's just a series of coincidences that there have been these 25 suicides. Now, we all knew that it was statistically impossible, and so there you've got a very powerful signal of suppression. So in the same moment, And about the same thing, that you've got that invitation to look and take note from Ronald Reagan, you've still got the most emphatic means of silencing leakage of information or further discussion alongside. And that's quite a dramatic illustration of how disclosure and classification always go hand in hand. Were God and Noah extraterrestrials as we've come to know extraterrestrials are the definition of those well elohim were extraterrestrials sorry i thought the line had gone dead there you were so quiet uh elohim yes refers to the powerful ones that's the root meaning they're sky people they are extraterrestrials certainly we are all hybrids uh, according to the ancient texts that includes noah And then some may be a little bit more E.T. than others because in the Jewish, the Christian, Chinese, you can find cultures all around the world that talk about what we might call indigo children or star children where something has happened at the conception of a person or in the pregnancy that has altered the progress of that person's development so that they've got a little bit more E.T. in them. And that's the story of Gilgamesh out of the Sumerian story It's the story of Jesus and John the Baptist and Samson and Isaac in the Bible. It's the story of the Yellow Emperor, Lao Tzu, Vipassi Buddha in the East. All these stories talk about how the mothers had a close encounter either with an E.T. or with um, a technology of light that impacted them at the moment of conception that resulted in a child who was us plus a bit more. And it's such an interesting story that recurs in these cultures. And again, today, there are women who will describe experiences like that. They might have four children, but there's something different about the third, something special, higher intelligence, higher consciousness. And if if you can get the story from them and ask, did something unusual happen (laughs) with that particular pregnancy? then they might say yes, but it's not a story that mothers go to the press with thinking they're going to make money from it. It's held very closely in the present day, but it's a story that recurs through the ages. One of those questions way back when I posed was, could we have confused the idea of God with ancient E.T. visitations? Is there conclusive proof of that, Paul, one way or the other? Well, that's the argument I make in The Scars of Eden, and I make it chiefly on the basis of linguistics, language, ancient texts, 
And I show that some of our ideas of God have come from stories that are descriptions of close encounters. And that's the case I make in The Scars of Eden. But our ancestors may not have known any different. Because as we have evolved, as, as, as humanity has evolved, so has our understanding of what we're dealing with. Absolutely. So you can go to a passage, say, um, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Moses has this encounter with a being who ri- arrives in a craft that belches fire and smoke and shakes the ground when it lands. And he dialogues with that being. And after a few days of conversation, he says to the being, can I see your big heavy thing? And the response is, you can't be in the open when the big heavy thing moves or it will kill you. But if you hide in the cleft in the rock and I shelter you, you'll be able to see it as it moves away. Now, we can read those texts today and translate them. I've been there at space shuttle launches and I understand what that being was talking about, that you can't be in the open when the big heavy thing launches. When I saw a discovery launch back in 1994, the technicians nearest to the launch site were behind reinforced concrete three miles away. We were even further away. The technicians operating the launch were in a different state altogether. So we've got a framework to read that Moses text and say, yeah, better not be out in the open. Whereas 500 years ago, when translators were working on that, they'd never seen a Saturn V launch. They'd never seen a space shuttle launch. They did not know what airborne or spacefaring technology was. And so they had to find some other way of translating it. And they've translated it in a way that is really, with all due respect, not coherent. It doesn't make sense. It's not coherent within itself. And the reason is because they're trying to describe a technological phenomenon as something spiritual, and it doesn't match. Same, You could say the same with Ezekiel, where people have tried to read that encounter that Ezekiel had as if it were a spiritual phenomenon, But it is so material, so nuts and bolts, that NASA has a patent on the wheels described in that text. It's called the Omnidirectional Wheel, and the patent was obtained in 1974 by Josef Blumrich, who worked for NASA. So those are just two examples of us being able to understand things that our ancestors saw and experienced, but that the translators in between really had a struggle over. That's why we have to go back to the original texts and so they say it's time to retranslate them. To the cave people, an invention like, uh, I don't know, a cell phone uh, might have looked like a big rock. So if we go back 500 years or so, possible that there's something in the text that a translator, say, way back then, wouldn't be able to translate? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, we can go into Revelation, for instance, and we've got the description of a huge cube coming down from outer space that can generate its own light and that is generates its own food supply from farms that exist within that cube. So it is clearly a, a space-bound mothership that can carry, and we're told it can carry tens of thousands of people. We read that and we can recognize a craft They used the word city to describe what they were seeing. Ezekiel saw a craft. He didn't have the word craft. He used the word temple to describe what he was seeing. But again, it generates its own light, generates its own water, 
generates its own plants and food. So those would be examples where we, we've got a shrewd idea of, of what we're looking at, but the translators of the day didn't have the same vocabulary as we are, but were faithful enough in describing what they saw that we can listen to them and say, actually, I know what you're talking about. You mentioned the shuttle launches, and so that got me wondering about technology. And does the Bible say anything about technology that may have given been given to us by an ET race or something of the kind? Well, along with the examples I've just given, we've got devices called the Urim and Thummim, which were communications devices for getting us information from the Elohim. But the translators didn't know how they worked, and it looks like that by the time we got those stories, the possessors of those devices didn't know how they worked either. And they were communications devices with lights on them, but they're described as breastplates that you would wear that had crystals on them. Uh, Same with that craft. It talked about shining crystals on them, whereas we might think, no, those might very well have been different colored lights that they were seeing on that craft. So we've got that. Then we've got technology that's used. We've got the Ark of the Covenant that clearly had a technological function because it could create these shifts of wind that could affect the course of rivers so that people could cross rivers. It's described in a technological way, and yet it's all within the context of a spiritual story. And so that's one way in which we read a technological moment and gloss over it, not realizing what we've just read. How does religion view this subject? Have you uh, gotten reaction from, you know, churches who who have uh, read your work uh, and, and crossed over uh, this pass, path with you? Well, in a great spectrum of ways. One of the things that really goaded me into doing the research and producing Escaping from Eden was actually the encouragement of church authorities back in 2009 when uh, the most conservative pope in my lifetime, Benedict XVI, called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold a symposium, which they called a colloquium, a gathering of top scholars and theologians to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And some top authorities out of the Roman Catholic Church came forward, spoke into that topic, and met the press with it. And they said we shouldn't be surprised to have contact with other civilizations because ET entities are mentioned in the Bible, they're in the Old Testament, they're in the New Testament, they're reported today. People sometimes think that they are psychotic breaks or demonic experiences, but they're not. They are experiences of a totally different kind of entity that we should study seriously. All this was said at that time in 2009 by religious authorities, and they all said we've got room to accommodate this. To realize we're in a populated universe only means the creator's been even busier than we thought. And that's the way they framed it, and I completely agree with that. And so you've got people like that who have have room for it and would encourage believers to have room for it and think about it. At the other end of the spectrum, I do hear from some who will come in on the Paul Wallace channel or the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube. They'll get into the comments and they will just lambast me saying, this is doctrine of demons, you're luring people to the pit of hell, this is blasphemy, this, that and the other. But even there, in 80% of those cases, I, I always try and respond, 
And in 80% of the times when I respond, within a couple of exchanges, if I go back and say, thank you for your comment, the reason I say that is this, and I'm not out to debunk the Bible, I'm out to understand it and translate it, know what the ancients were telling us. Within a couple of exchanges, very often we're the best of friends. And we're wishing each other well in our explorations. It's only a tiny fraction who do become very angry because they've got only a few boxes into which the whole universe has to squeeze. It's either God, the devil, angels, demons, human, animal, vegetable, mineral, and there are no other boxes. But I argue in The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden, there are far more boxes than that to give us a, gr a grip on what's happening. And I think it's important to say that because... One of the reasons that people don't share their own experiences is because they feel they don't have the language for it or they don't understand what happened. They feel it must have been a demonic experience if they're a Christian or a religious person uh, because they don't have a box labeled ET or anomalous that they can say, I actually don't understand what it was. And part of what I want to do with my books is to encourage people to talk about their own experiences because if we can do, if we can listen to one another with respect instead of with ridicule, we'll soon discover we're living in a far more interesting universe than ever we thought. All right, time winding down, but we do have time for one question. It comes in through our Facebook live chat from Omar, who wants to know about the wheel of Ezekiel and specifically the wheel within the wheel. Yes, this was uh, what I was talking about earlier, which is very intriguing. There are many interpretations of it, but I stick with Josef Blumrich, who challenged Eric von Daniken back in 1972, and he said there is no technology in the Bible. Eric von Daniken said, go and read Ezekiel. And so this engineer went and read it with an engineer's mind, drew up schematics of this wheel within a wheel, and came up with the omnidirectional wheel patented in 1974 that's still used by NASA on craft to this day. Now, there are layers of the story, and there may be esoteric meanings that are in that text as well that have to do with other things, but the original experience was a nuts and bolts experience of a kind of wheel that the ETs used that we hadn't yet learned to build, and in the 1970s, we finally did. Paul, because time is so precious, I want to give you the floor to uh, make any final points and to let the audience know how they can follow you. Sure. Well, my books, The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden, you can get them from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Book Depository, Hive, wherever books are sold. And if you'd like to get into conversation with me, because I love dialoguing with my readers, go to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube, to the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube. And if you go to paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S.com, paulanthonywallace.com, you can reach me through there. I do personal coaching through that website through Skype, through other means, and I would be very happy for you to contact me this way. Where this has all led me is I'm really excited about the truth of who we are and our real potential as human beings, how we can live more conscious, more intelligent, and harmoniously on this planet. All that flows out from a better understanding of who we are and where we came from. Do you believe it's healthy that we challenge our beliefs often, Paul? Yes, I do. And I think often experiences force us to do that. We have to be willing to go back and say, do I have that right? And a proportion of the time, the answer will be no, you need to think further. And I find that a really exciting journey. Paul, best to you. And I look forward to our next discussion.
Oh, Jeremy, thanks so much for having me on today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been awesome having you with us here as well on our two-hour debut on FM News 101 KXL. We'll be back with you next week. And to join us in two weeks up at Squatch Fest in Longview, Washington. would love to see those of you who can make it out in attendance. I'll be there on Friday night and all day on Saturday. We've got details on our website, parabnormalradio.com. We've got the event info posted on our Facebook page. And if you haven't liked us, it's facebook.com slash show at where you you can get all the information. So we will talk to you then, friends, from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep within the studios of FM News 101 KXL here in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jeremy Scott. Good night, everyone. Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.